Welcome back to another episode of Fantastic Voyage, that Tin Machine podcast. I'm Jesse. I'm Johnny. Um, you, know, you know, it's interesting because you always say the David Bowie podcast. And I, sometimes I think, well, we aren't the <laughs> only one. You know, we aren't the David Bowie. I mean, we could beat the self-proclaimed the David Bowie podcast. But, <laughs> I never even realized that. You're right. I do say that. But we could be the Tin Machine podcast. Probably. Podcast related to all things Tin Machine. Tin Machine news, Tin Machine updates, Tin Machine fun facts. I mean, the possibilities are really endless here. <laughs> I'm excited to talk about this one. It's a long time coming. It's been three or so weeks since we did the best of the 80s. We're still in the 80s. We're in the 80s still, yeah. yeah. Although, um, does it just me or does it feel like we're in the 90s with this album? Yeah, kind of. It's funny because he starts the 80s feeling like you're still in the 70s a bit because yeah. Scary Monsters is not a prototypical 80s sounding production, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's kind of a continuation of Lodger, you know, as opposed to... The start of Let's Dance. Well, it's, it's his best, arguably, sounding record. I'd say, like, that and The Man Who Sold the World have some of, like, this the crispest, greatest production on it. And then, you know, fast forward to 87, and it's the complete and total opposite, right? right? So, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like more classic, that album. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're still, we're in the 80s. Uh, I've, I was alive when this was released so that's a first we're entering the universe of oh right yeah yeah this was released uh, may 22nd 1989 i was born in march 89 so that's kind of cool recorded uh in 88 though uh or started in august of 88 and concluded in the spring of 89 so yeah in montreux switzerland so he's sticking around there um yeah speaking of loca- locale we're in my backyard again this is our second or I guess I should say our third and fourth episodes in the great outdoors. The beautiful summer, early summer evening here in Winnipeg. We don't get spring. We went from winter. The snow melted in literally two days. Yeah, 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 it did. It was funny. I had like this huge, you know, it could be like four feet of snow or whatever in the front yard. I remember thinking like, oh no, like the snow's melting. Uh, my eaves troughs, there's no place for the water to go. It's covered in snow. And I went, oh, this is going to take me forever to shovel it out. And it was gone in like 36 hours. Like, <laughs> yeah. It, it just all went away. We went winter summer like literally overnight we we get technically like the four seasons here in winnipeg but it's really only three because we don't get much of a spring it's just like a long winter a really really hot summer and then a pretty delightful fall I, I, fall time here is great we yeah, digress though here we are talking about winnipeg weather and climate again well, i feel <laughs> it's like a it's a bingo card it uh, is fascinating to talk space. about because i think if people even know what winnipeg is they would the Chances are they don't, but if they do, they would associate it with the cold. So I, I think it's kind of important to remind people that we do yeah. have very scalding hot summers. We get, like, what was that one two years ago where, like, every day in July except for one reached plus 30, I think. Right. That happened two yeah. summers ago. For those Fahrenheit users, that's, like, uh, like 200. Mid, <laughs> it's, like, mid-90s to, like, you know, up to 100. Like, we get there. Um, and, I mean, we use the correct, I mean... Celsius is the way to properly measure it. I'm sorry. Right. Zero the freezing point of water. Zero degree. Why would it, it works? Yeah, it's a lot better than whatever the hell Fahrenheit is. Um, you may hear my dog Elvis crying. He, we're going to be playing fetch with him as we record this episode. I think he may have lost his ball under my deck, but oh no, it's right there. <laughs> I can hear him. Yeah. All right. So this is a great album to listen to outdoors. I was doing some yard cleanup while listening to it you know it's funny i started listening to this a few weeks ago and i haven't listened to it in the last 
six or seven days, but it's, I listened to it enough that it definitely stuck enough that I could talk about it still. Uh, did a couple painting projects in the house, some yard work. It's a good kind of working album. One that you can, uh, what did Jack White said that his new, one of his new albums is a good roofing album. Like, you know, put this on if you're fixing your roof. It's hard rock. It's, it's blue collar yeah. rock. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And yeah, this is the point in the year where us Winnipeggers are doing, you know, we're resodding, reseeding our lawns and stuff. And yeah, I mean, I, I started listening to this right around when I started doing my yard work too. And it's, uh, I feel like that's why we probably both subconsciously knew to do this outside today. Like it wasn't really plan. a plan and you just said, bring your uh, outdoor mic thingy so that we can do it outside. And I went, oh yeah, I was kind of just expecting that anyway. Like I was actually going to bring it anyway. <laughs> just in case. Yeah. I mean, this, it just, it made sense to do this outside. Speaking of cleaning up, Bowie cleans up or cleans out the his. That's another his bingo personnel. thing. <laughs> you take something from the last sentence and then, <laughs> yeah, very you use it very well in the next. <laughs> he cleans house. Uh, he's he's in a band now. Bowie forms a band. Uh, it's a democratic group, and that's what he said he needed. He was tired of being the guy who just kind of orchestrated everything. And I think, as some people that were around him in the studio were saying, that everybody just kind of gave way to whatever Bowie had to say. Like, okay, God, I'm not going to tell you that this doesn't sound good. I, I think he needed somebody to veto him every once in a while. And he called it, he needed a veto mechanism. He needed to be told that, you know, maybe this isn't a great idea, or I have another idea that might well, be better. Yeah, I think he said the, uh, the Sales Brothers in particular were like, quite vocal in them not being fond of his last few records so it was important to have those people on board yeah not yes men not he needed people like that you know that told him his shit didn't or that his shit stunk you know yeah, that, right he, he needed that yeah so yeah uh tony sales on uh bass and hunt sales on drums uh tony played less than life bass right or, or lust on life. Both, lust I thought for they were life. both on that album. Were they? Okay. Sorry, you, you probably really hear the dog panting now. He really wants me to play fetch with him. <laughs> He's jumping on me. Elvis, no. Can't play. Go away, buddy. <laughs> Sorry. We'll play later. Uh, yeah, so the, the Sales Brothers are going to play a huge uh, role in the next couple of years with Bowie's output. And even longer than that, unless you have something else to say about the, the Sales Brothers... Oh, uh, no, not about them specifically. Okay, so. uh, because, yeah, Reeves Gabrels enters the picture, who will be who will have much more to say for the next decade, really. Uh, mm-hmm. His Ronson of the 90s, or his yeah, what Alomar of the 90s. Like, he's the next great say, Bowie collaborator. I would say Ronson before Alomar, because, just because they, they sound more similar. I mean, Alomar, yeah. there, there's some kind of quote Alomar gave about this album where he said, like, I wanted to get Bowie doing uh, different kinds of music, but I always thought that if I gave it back to him, it would end up going back to the Spiders from Mars. And he says, like, that's kind of what happened here. Yeah. So I, I would firmly place Gabrels closer to Ronson than I would uh, Alomar, stylistically. Yeah, and I think he brought a similar kind of creativity and production uh, input. Yeah, because I, the- I don't want to just say they're just hard blues guys yeah it's that's part of it too but it's it's also what you're saying there. yeah so yeah reeves wife sarah gave bowie a demo of reeves music i guess or something is playing on i don't know what exactly it was uh she was working 
as uh, you know, I'm not sure what her her role was, but she was a part of the Glass Spider tour, and he was Reeves was kind of kicking around and befriended Bowie, or Bowie befriended him, and he didn't even really re- did he not realize that he was a guitarist, or is that the the G. E. Smith story? I can't remember. Well, the only background I really know about Reeves prior to this is that and maybe this is why they're wearing suits on the cover. He was playing in like wedding bands. Oh, okay. Like playing, like playing <laughs> Can you with... <laughs> imagine like brown-eyed girl with like his dive bombs in the middle of a wedding? Well, that's apparently that's what he he would do. He would do like uh, free improv kind of stuff. Uh, that that was his specialty in these these bands. And uh, yeah, he he drove around with a suit in his car, and you know, he I don't know if he had a day job, but he you know he kind of used his uh, these wedding gigs as his his practice. You know, and he just kind of. Got, his dad apparently always told him, like, you just need to get good at one thing and you'll make a career out of it. So he started playing guitar, and sure enough, his, he really lucked into it. I mean, it's the classic rock story. It's the classic rock origin story of getting the break. You know, your wife's working on this set for this megastar, and then you just hand him your tape, and next thing you know, you're on the road with David Bowie. Right, yeah. Reeves said at the time, or speaking of the time maybe, that Bowie was at a crossroads. Yeah, definitely. Um, where he said you could either become Rod Stewart and do Vegas and keep giving the fans what they want, or you can start following your heart and start making music for you again. And there's the age-old debate of do you make music for your fans? Do you make music to, you know, I'd hate to say it, but to sell out? Uh, or do you make music for for you, for that, that you want to do? So, I mean, he takes two sales to not sell out. <laughs> When what, what he wants is kind of something different, and I think something that was a problem for him was that people people wanted to, to if they were going to play with him, they were going to make music that they just wanted him, or that they assumed he wanted. And it was based off of records of his in the past. Now, there's a... Uh, we didn't really prepare for this episode at all, so I actually just copied this one bit uh, verbatim that I kind of wanted to touch on from... Uh, this is from Chris O'Leary's blog. And a point that he makes is that Bowie had had top professional musicians working for him then you know back in the day but they they were like this is in the 70s but that these guys like they were men of an r&b funk and jazz background who bowie challenged by throwing odd harmonically vague fragmented and at times highly personal pieces at them they responded by translating the pieces into their language and playing them back for him and it was a conversation neither party had known how it would end but now bowie felt that any musician that he chose when offered an envelope pushing bowie song would think oh like heroes and play in that style so his avant-garde material had become a genre so that, that this is what chris wrote now i think that's a fantastic uh, point to, to touch on because i think this is why it must be so hard or why it was so hard for Bowie to remain cutting edge, and especially now that he's a star, because you yourself, you kind of become a formula. Like, this is kind of just like how it would be tough for an audience to divorce Max Zorin from David Bowie in the James mm-hmm. Bond film, right? Like yeah. it's, and so I think it's equally now tough for musicians, or even an audience for that matter, to divorce David Bowie and all things in his past from the present-day David Bowie. There's always that thing you're going to go back to, the established part. You So you, you walk into the studio going, I'm working with Bowie, and you kind of have these preconceived notions of what you need to sound like as a musician to make the Bowie, like you said, yeah. formula work. And I think, Yeah, that makes sense. And I think... Yeah. The, the, the main takeaway here is that it makes the whole idea of him being in a band now make a lot more sense. Like, let's just pretend it's not David Bowie for one second. Let this be something else. This, this is not a David Bowie album. 
doesn't say David Bowie on the front cover. Doesn't say David Bowie really, you know, anywhere. Maybe in the liner notes. Apparently, uh, some record stores would put on a sticker. Oh yeah, the hype sticker, like <laughs> yeah, the, from the the man who brought you "Let's Dance" and "Ashes to Ashes." Like they made sure that you remember Here's that. But, bus stop. <laughs> but yeah, I think the point of this album and why this was, you know, because I feel like it gets talked about a lot. This was the the stepping stone for him. This was the album that broke him out of the funk, and I think that's a, probably the most important point in that is that. In order to become David Bowie again, he ironically had to become not David Bowie. Yeah. So that they could kind of divorce who he was in the past and just focus on this this new thing. He also does kind of reach out to the past a lot in this album. We'll talk about it. But I do think that generally speaking, this is a very good move for him. And it proved to be, I mean, maybe that's just me saying this in retrospect, but given everything we just talked about, I think it makes sense that it all worked out in the end and that this was a very necessary album for him in his career arc. Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. And two more, I guess, personnel that we should mention. Kevin Armstrong played with him at Live Aid, uh, played on Blah Blah Blah, Dancing in the Street. He is around and plays a lot on this album, but he's not a, an official Tin Machine member. Whenever Bowie couldn't play a rhythm part, because Bowie's the rhythm guitarist right. in this band, yeah. right? Uh, he would get Armstrong yeah. to, to play the, and, the complicated parts. And, and like the Rick Wakeman of Hunky Dory. Right. Yeah, that, did the that piano makes sense. On that until the hard he, parts. Until he actually needed someone to really play piano. Yeah. Although, you know, he does play on pretty things, and mm -hmm. that's a pretty cool piano part. So, I mean, yeah, he's a little bit humble, maybe, on, in that respect. Mm -hmm. But then again, Life on Mars and Quicksand. Yeah. Uh, Tim Palmer is the other, uh, who's the producer of this album, who worked with everyone. Uh, Pearl Jam, U2, Ozzy Osbourne. Did a great job of producing this album, I think, because... By the sound of it, it it doesn't sound like the chaos that you read about in terms of how they recorded it. Apparently, uh, Hunt was up on a huge stand, thrashing away at the drums, and it was super loud and crazy. <laughs> and it it sounds great. Like I, there isn't anything buried in the mix. Like it doesn't. It it sound like when you read about it, they're describing like XL on Main Street type conditions almost. Aside from maybe the hot, humid south of France. Well, it was Humidity. like they were trying to be just louder than each other. Because, you know, when I listen to this album, uh, there's still a lot of space between the instruments, but, like, the the drums I didn't think were doing anything, like, complex. Like, if I'm going to be trying to play over somebody, you'd think you'd be bringing a lot of, like, very interesting flourish, just kind of showing off. But to me, it's almost just, like, Loud. making noise for the sake of it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Like, the fact that this album sounds pretty clean is it, for just people just bashing the shit out of their instruments, it's that's it, a good testament to the producer. But what's his name again? I actually didn't... Tim Palmer. Tim Palmer. Yeah, yeah he's, a, he's an unsung hero here for sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh... You know what, let's get into the tracks. There's a lot of tracks to talk about. Yeah, I don't know if we'll dive as deep as we typically do, but well, we'll, we'll give it a shot. I still honestly don't even really remember. Like, I was listening to this on CD, like I said, when I was doing yard work, so the song has a refrain. I'll probably be able to, to match that title with the song, but yeah, I think this is what it, this is getting harder now at this point to remember the song titles, right? Because it's just, and especially on an album like this, it's so long. Yeah. Like, how? I'm sure this is over. 50 minutes like it's got to be closer to an hour it's CD era and we'll get to the discrepancies between LP and CD versions uh, when we get to side B I guess I don't oh hey this is the first album I don't own this is the only Bowie LP that I don't own a copy of um, so yeah that's kind of well, do you want I've got two I brought my disc over I guess you don't have a disc player anymore you gave it to me but yeah yeah I lucked into the other uh, record actually I got it at a uh, 
the Winnipeg Record and Tape Company, great little record store uh, here in Winnipeg. I was able to get it for like $30 instead of 70 or whatever it goes for because it had one of those promotional hole punches in it. So that oh, deducted that's great. its value. To, I don't give a shit about that little hole. Yeah. So... Was it was it relatively new to you? This like listen to this? Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, same. And, and I'd even you know when I bought it, I didn't really play it because I was kind of saving it for this. Yeah. Because I'm I'm I am excited to do this chronologically and to not interrupt the flow because we're getting to this point in his career. They are admittedly blind spots for me, but that makes it all the more exciting. So. Oh totally. That's, yeah. Yeah. I've been saving this one. I I listened to this album. I gave it a good listen years ago and didn't really come back to it. I think it was because it was during my great Bowie die, deep dive and there was just other things that I returned to ahead of it, right? So, and there's Elvis saying, get to the tracks. Let's get to the tracks. Kicking things off, we've got Heavens in here. And speaking of no notes, I've got one thing. Barbecue, music, and Reeves is smoking. There's my note. It's just... This is the kind of song that we were talking about. You put this on when you're barbecuing. It's mm-hmm. very much, uh, it's kind of like, kind of swampy, kind of southern rock, and really, really good. I, I, this one just has such a great feel to it. Kind of R&B uh, adjacent almost, mm-hmm. but kind of rootsy. I don't know. It's just there's a lot of, I feel a lot of things when I listen to this well, one. Well, it kind of starts out, um, if I'm remembering correctly, maybe like a little misleading, like it kind of sounds like it's going to be a very texture, almost like something that you'd hear on Heroes. The guitars kind of sound a little, you know, wonky, a little like Adrian Beaulieu almost, like they're going to go places that are wild and extravagant. But then it does kind of settle into just a more typical, aggressive, hard rock song by the, the, by the middle, and especially at the end. I mean, the song ends... I do remember that. It ends very busily, like, it's instrumentally. Like, this, this is, when we were talking earlier about the songs where it's just the instrumentalists bashing the shit out of their instruments, that happens on this song. Yeah, right? oh, yeah. Uh, maybe it sounds a little wonky, the guitars, because Reeves is quoted as saying, I'd like to play out of tune because, I don't know, I've, we've heard people play in tune before. <laughs> like, that's what a great attitude towards playing guitar. Well, once again, uh, shout out to the producer. I mean... You guys are playing out of tune, too. I didn't know that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, there was... Apparently, John Lennon uh, played... Like, he had a very flat D string or something like that. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, yeah, the ending Fill, is... Filling the quota. Yeah. The bingo card here. Yeah, there's a Lennon <laughs> reference. And we haven't even got to the Lennon track yet. <laughs> um he does the little, I don't know if it's a callback to Station to Station, but Reeves does the little Chuck Berry riff right at the very end, too. Do you notice that? I don't remember that specifically. Yeah, he play, it's, it, it's very similar to that. Similar to what Slick does on, I'm assuming it's Slick on Station to Station. I don't think it was Bowie. No, yeah, probably not. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this one, I... <laughs> Now, this is where the blind spot maybe starts to kick in right away. I, I don't really listen to the words for this. It could be uh, lorem ipsum, or, you know, where well, you get the generic text to put into your into your document just to check the template or whatever. It could be like that, because I just listen to the music on it. Although, I'm just going to assume that there's probably a, a, a meaning to heavens in here, especially if Bowie's behind the mic well I, you know this album i don't think the, the lyrics are less important now than i mean they were more important on uh warzawa than they were on some of these songs <laughs> you know because like part of this being a democratic album right was 
uh, the sales brothers were saying, like, we don't want any lyrical rewrites. This is like just primitive rock and roll. Like these are, you know, your first draft is what we, we do. We don't work on things. We don't tweak things. We just bang them out. And I think that's the spirit of this song. It's the spirit of this album. This album was cut in what, or this song was cut. Like this was the first song that they did, right? Yeah. And I think a lot, a lot of them were done quick. And this was, yeah, I believe it was like, okay, first day in the studio, they, they just banged it banged it out yeah they didn't and bowie wasn't allowed he's not he's not david bowie the front he's not even the front man of the band he's just he's a band member he'd do press and he wouldn't talk sometimes yeah that must have been tough for him because i mean keep in mind this is the guy who wouldn't you know participate in bills unless he was top bill and you know he needed to be front and center and i guess he realized all along that maybe that was a mistake or at least at this point he didn't want that anymore well yeah go ahead well i was just gonna say if you're thinking like you left something on the table by not analyzing this song lyrically, I don't think you did. Because you know? <laughs> I typically will pull from certain things lyrically. They maybe stick out to me a little bit more. And there's nothing about this song where I thought there were lyrics jumping out of the page to me. Well, and I think uh, if you're in a band setting now, it's not so much a, okay, what's David? What's on David Bowie's mind right now? There's There's more pieces to the puzzle where... You know, with his next album, very well could have been okay. Bowie's gonna dive into his next personal venture, or what, or whatever it is. You know, like, or he's gonna write an album about isolation again, or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, definitely, there's some elements that seep through on some of these songs. But yeah, like you said, the rewrites and just having to come up with lyrics quickly and not rewriting the and not going over and over and maybe focusing on the lyrics, probably, yeah. That's that's a huge change, especially coming down from what he had just done with two huge tours and his most commercially successful albums, despite the lack of critical acclaim. Um, yeah, he said himself, it's interesting to have to shut up. That's what he yeah. when he spoke of the, the, doing the press for this. So, yeah, that's I think maybe we put more thought into the lyrics in this last 10 minutes than he did. I don't know. But maybe they're... I, Maybe we're missing something with this one, but great, great song to put on, though. It's a put it on song. It's great. Great to listen to. Yeah, it's a fun one to listen to. And uh, if we want to use that as a segue into the uh, the next track. Yeah. Um, I kind of love the idea. The next track's called Tin Machine. And I, I kind of love the idea of having the self-titled song come second. You know, they intro- like with the last track, they introduced the world to the band with, a, you know, it's an ex- extended long intro um and then they kind of get right into business like it's a it's a cinematic presentation almost like an action movie we'll go back to james bond for example it's like heavens in here is almost like this big long exciting scene to whet everyone's appetites you know kind of like a, a good sign of things to come and then bam we get this title song it's kind of like right to business it's almost like the title or you know the, the title song in a james bond movie yeah. right it's like i do like this one two start to the record quite a bit yeah uh the intro is awesome too. It just sounds, uh, yeah, like it sonically, it's great. When I don't know about you, but when I heard this song for the first few times, like I thought of this as an anthem. Like I thought, oh, they're doing the, the Tin Machine anthem, yeah. and they wrote it. That I think that's way. been said a lot about like the monkeys. You know, it's like, oh, this is their monkeys song. I, I saw that well, several places. But the interesting thing is, is that I finally started reading up on the album this morning, and then I, I just read that they picked the name of the band from, from the this song, song yeah. rather than naming the song after the band. Yeah. So, th- it's just, it's just weird to me how my concept, my idea of this song was, 
we're singing about we're Tin Machine, but they, they weren't Tin Machine when they did it. Yeah. I That just was a bit of a mindfuck for me. Like, Usually you hear about, like, you pick a, a lyric from a song or a title of a song to name the album, but not the band. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this one, though, lyrically, there is a bit more, it's a bit more on the nose. A, a lot of social commentary. Uh, I mean, this is, and this pops up a lot on this album. It's a lot of uh, anti-right-winged uh, lyrics, yeah. Uh, oh gosh, what does he say? Uh, working horrors, humping Tories, <laughs> uh, carving up my children's future, make a new computer thing that puts me on the moon, not some psycho time bomb planet poised to meet its maker. Something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I just I wrote down a few of the lyrics that stuck out. Well, um, it's almost like I think this song did, like for you I think it's the same thing for me it did stick out a little bit more lyrically like uh, and it was almost five years esque or something like, he, there's like a, the zombies that I pass the guy that beats his baby up the preachers in their past like it's a kind of like you know getting back to that more surreal vivid imagery almost like there was there was actually a little bit more jumping out of the page for me on this on this tune yeah um, I, I love the the raging, 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 burning in my room part too. The way that I don't know if it kind of the, the the groove shifts a little bit for that part, and it kind of just feels like it's revving up a bit more. Um, well, I think that's why the song has those anthemic qualities and why it made sense as an anthem. Right. Maybe yeah. that's why they picked it too. Because I can see people singing to this one at a concert. Probably I haven't divin, dove and dove, dived. <laughs> I can say that eight different ways. It is dived. Dived yeah. into the live stuff. Doven in, yeah, no, that's it's dived. Yeah. I haven't livened into Divin, the do- diving stuff. <laughs> uh, but I can see people. I can imagine people singing along to this one in the crowd. Yeah, another banger to start, or uh, to the second song. And once again, I think this this song maybe highlights something to. Th- in the, in the sense that Tin Machine is this great stepping stone in Bowie's career. And once again, I copied something verbatim from O'Leary's book, so bear with me while I, I read it verbatim again. <laughs> Gotta um, have O'Leary on the show. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I mean, it might be a possibility. We'll uh, look more on that later. But <laughs> he says, uh, Gabrels, interviewed by Spin at the album's release, said tin was symbolic because while it seems like an archaic material, it's actually found everywhere. Cans in supermarkets, rusted scraps on the street... The band, in turn, tried to deliberate, tried to be deliberately archaic, reactionary, not using synthesizers or sequencers. Like they said, uh, we were sick of turning on the radio and hearing disco and dance music and drum machines, which I think in the business they call crap. Tony <laughs> Sale said in the same interview, and uh, it also he also mentions that Gabrels and Bowie favored older gear, like. Uh, they were using a 1963 Stratocaster that was once owned by Mark Bolin, and they were using this Marshall 100-watt super lead or super lead amp that Bowie had lying around in Switzerland. And so Bowie, Gabrels, and the other guitarist, Kevin Armstrong, they even tried to limit their use of chorus and delay effects. Uh, Gabrels claimed that no guitar effects he used on this album were post-1974, so it's a very primitive technology album also. And so when we think of this album as being the stepping stone for Bowie to regain his magic... I once again think this is another one of those big reasons why uh, you think like Never Let Me Down was a failure. Like, okay, I like the record. I know you're pretty fond of it, but for the sake of not being overly anecdotal, let's call it for what it is. It, it was a failure within his catalog. He didn't get yeah. the proper fulfillment out of that record, whether we think it's cool or not. 
it was a record. It's, it's in the basement. It bothered him. Near, that record yeah. bothered him. Yeah. Uh, it bothered the fans. It bothered the critics. So, well, what does he do? He, he rids himself of that modern technology that he wasn't comfortable with, right? Like, Never Let Me Down was just drenched in this fluffy 80s stuff, and it was pretty clear that he had no idea what the hell he was doing with it. I think we also both agree that yeah. the 2018 mix is, is so better because it doesn't superior. sound like that. Like, so. like, based almost every song. So, you know, yeah, I mean, this just, once again, it makes sense. Like, he's going back to bands. He's going back, he's in a band like he used to be back in the day. He's, he's going back to old technology. And I also think, too, just the name. I mean, Tin Machine. That doesn't sound modern either. It sounds almost like it comes from, like, an industrial period. I don't mean, like, industrial music. Like, the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> tin yeah. Machine. So I think that this fact that this is going back to a more primitive state for him was another ironically big stepping stone he's got to take 10 steps back to take the one step forward yeah cool there's like a, a weird it sounds like a sounds like whatever the tin machine is kind of says something right at the beginning it sounds like the intergalactic beastie boys or something for like a split second at the beginning i like that part it's a fun song too because it's like uh i love when people are like comically meta Right, like the, now that okay, we this song apparently didn't start out as a meta song, but it turned into one when they named <laughs> right. the band after it. And it's just something about it's it's kind of, it's almost funny to me. Mm -hmm. Your band's called Tin Machine, the album's called Tin Machine, and here your second album, Tin Machine, Tin, Tin Machine. It, it, like it's funny, it almost got like Devo qualities or something. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And uh, I, I feel like a lot of my favorite artists they they are comically meta at times. Like uh, the Brian Jonestown Massacre do this. Uh, the leader of that band, Anton Newcomb, is. His uh, album gate folds and back covers, like they always have some hilarious quote, and it's like one of like it's his own quote. Like I'll give you an example here. I got a picture of the back cover of his their album, Thank God for Mental Illness, and it says, "Question, Anton, did you sell your soul? Answer, Well, I tried to, but the line was so long, I said fuck it, and that that's it. <laughs> uh, there's another one that says, God knows I do the best I can, so fuck everything." And it's just like all his albums have these hilarious quotes of himself. That, you know, <laughs> it's kind of like David Byrne interviewing himself at the end of Stop Making Sense. You know, he's in the suit and he's interviewing himself. Uh, I wanted to write a song, a love song, so I wrote it one to a lamp. Or <laughs> speaking uh, of love songs, unless you have something oh, else. No, no, dude. The next one, I mean, tale oldest time. Prisoner of Love. <laughs> That's a bit more back to basics with the lyrics, maybe. Uh, but Bowie's in love. He's got a girlfriend, uh, the dancer, the one who gets pulled up on stage. And, you know, at first you think she might be getting groped by Bowie randomly, but it was his girlfriend, Melissa mm -hmm. Hurley, um, who is much younger than him. Um, and that maybe there's another song that might touch on that a bit more I think so amazing we'll, yeah so maybe we'll we'll save that what I was going to say on that for for that song but yeah this uh, a very familiar sounding song this one uh, whether it's the the lovey-dovey lyrics uh, or prisoner of lovey lyrics mm -hmm. prisoner of love um, but it's almost like it's I, I, I don't know if it's the riff or, or what it, it just or the the progression of the chords it just seems like i've heard it before but i can't pinpoint it uh but i like it maybe that's just what it is it's something that just sounds super familiar uh almost like surf rocky like the lead guitar on it is very surf surfy maybe that's what gives it that familiar familiarity that quality um 
Well, the guitar tone has almost like a chime sound to it, right? It's got some chorus and some reverb. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of got like this weeping quality to it. Uh, oh, I, I know those parts you're talking yeah, about too. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. yeah. Um, that is like, once again, like uh, more than any lyrics or anything, you know, Prisoner of Love, we heard that all before. Like the, it's the guitar that kind of caught my attention yeah. a lot on this. And I do like when guitars get used in the, these creative and unorthodox ways because, you know, there's so much to explore within that guitar and there's so much kind of beauty to untap in the instrument. Um, it, it almost kind of reminded me of like Adrian Beaulieu, you know, another classic Bowie collaborator. Uh, his playing on this song called uh, Mate Kudasai, which is a, a song on a discipline that I really love. He, he applies like a slide and an echo to his guitar and it, it makes the sound of like seagulls, you know. And it's a very ethereal feel. It's it's very reminiscent of something like Moss Garden, you know, and then the feel yeah. that that song evokes. Yeah. And I think, you know, this song is also doing these very interesting things with the guitar that you don't hear every day. And so that, its most redeeming quality to me is, would be, I guess that would be Gabrell's, right? Would be playing that. That was the lead that was doing that. I mean, Reeves is kind of the, the star of the show on this album. Uh, spoiler mm-hmm. alert. Yeah. Uh, but Bowie's vocal is superb on this track. Yeah. Uh, Starts out high and kind of get, reaches a like from the top of the octave to the bottom. Good, yeah, just solid, solid song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nothing to really write home about, but it's just like it's a put it on, set it, and forget it. You're gonna, you're gonna like it. This is actually one of the ones that has made a playlist of mine in the last few years. So it stuck out enough upon first listen, you know, half a decade ago or whatever that I went back to it. Mm-hmm. The next one uh, starts out like a Zeppelin song, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know what. Which... Yeah. yeah, I know this one starts. Yeah, yeah. that's Crack City. Uh... <laughs> you know, it's funny because when I was playing this, I went, "Oh yeah, like this is one I'm sure got torn to shreds by you know the rock critics um, for you know certain lines and." Oh yeah. You know, this we were talking earlier about how this album they were not allowed to do rewrites for the lyrics. So. All, you... It, it shows. <laughs> so you get assholes and buttholes, like the next line. <laughs> okay, well, what is the line? I mean, that's the They're one. Just a bunch of assholes with buttholes for a brain or something? Yeah, that's it. I think it. that's it, right? Yeah. And that is hilarious to me in the sense that what did Bowie's first lyrical drafts on his most classic works look like? You know, like <laughs> that's this like, could be a fun like, game. So th- this is the first draft. So like, we what, should have an episode where we just guess what it could have been. Like, what was <laughs> or maybe it? Maybe we put it out on Twitter, like, get some submissions. On heroes, what would it be like? We can be very upstanding people for an unstated period of time. Like, you know, we can be buttholes. <laughs> they're just a bunch of assholes with buttholes for a break. It's almost kind of funny to me. Like to me, that's a line that's almost so bad that it's just funny. And, and, and it's, it's funny to me to kind of watch, like, the critics almost squirm in anger, like, you're fucking David Bowie, this is the best you could do, assholes with buttholes for, but, like, it, that, that, it's funny to me. Like, yeah. I listen to this and I'm actually laughing at, at not only the line itself, but just the reaction to it. Like, I think it's another one of those things where I can't divorce David Bowie from David Bowie, but that also leads to this song being funny, because if anyone else said that, I'd be like, yeah, whatever. But it, when Bowie's doing it, it's kind of funny because you, you'd expect so much more from him. Yeah. And he's kind of refusing to do that. He's, no, I'm part of Tin Machine now. They don't want me to change this line. So, buttholes for a brain. That you and, get it. That, that's what assholes have. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the song does have some lyrical substance to it. 
um, speaking of substance, that's kind of what it's about. Uh, You know, rock and roll has kind of always glamorized uh, substance abuse of of all kinds. I mean, Bowie's guilty himself. Songs like uh, Cracked Actor, Gene Genie, right? Um, But this is kind of the opposite of that. He's now exposing what it does for you. He's telling kids not to reach for their scabby arms or something like that. And uh, I think he, I mean, the song's called Crack City, right? Yeah. It's it's very, it's the most on the nose song in in his catalog. (laughs) Well, or Under the God, possibly. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, this one is definitely, you know, more social commentary, but perhaps a bit, looking a bit inward. Which is, I think so. Yeah, too. we talked about you know the the line between that with with our favorite artists, where the social commentary sometimes doesn't it lacks something, and maybe it's the personal connection. But I think this is definitely something that Bowie, who's a former drug addict, has has something personal uh, attached to this to this social issue. Um, apparently, he was he, so when he cut out coke, he was he he drank quite a bit. And classic addiction thing. You trade one addiction yeah. for the next. And if it's not drugs for alcohol, it's trading alcohol for religion. You know, There's all kinds a, of things. We, that you, we're, right. we, humans are addictive right. beings in general. So there's always something, you know, it's just you're, you're always susceptible to just trade it for the next thing. And I read that apparently he may have even completed or taken, like, he'd gone to AA. He had quoted tech, like the text, like the classic Alcoholics Anonymous text in, in interviews at the time. Uh, so maybe the drinking became a bigger problem than we know about. Uh, maybe a bit more under wraps, or maybe it's easier to keep that under wraps to be a, a functioning alcoholic. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. Well, yeah, I, that's interesting because you know we're I, psychoanalyzing a bit. Well, yeah, and, I, and I'm I'm also not an expert on David Bowie's personal life, for like from for the last ten years. Like I know. I read a lot about Lowe because I love that album so much in that period. I know he was drunk a lot in those days mm-hmm. in Berlin with Iggy. He was seen at the bar, like, sitting crying like a like your typical sad boy at the bar. Yeah. So I'm not sure if that persisted into the 80s. I'm sure Could there's have. a listener right now that's going, I know, I know, I know, but I, I don't. So. Yeah. Um, but it would make sense with, with what you're uh, theorizing here. Yep, another solid song. Four in a row. And I mean, okay, I... You know, some of the lyrics in here are a little bit silly, like we were saying, but I think there's some half decent stuff in there, too. Like, may all your vilest nightmares consume your shrunken head. It's almost like, I mean, we, we kind of haven't even really touched on who he's talking about. I mean, he's he's talking about the ruling class that have inflicted this, all this uh, hardship on the, I'd put like the people that are addicted to crack, right. the, the homelessness yeah. and all that. You know, he was. Uh, going uh, off on Thatcher on the last album, and I think this is kind of like an extension of that. You know, it, almost to be fair to Never Let Me Down, you know, if this album's the big stepping stone for his 90s creative output, well, Never Let Me Down was a bit of a stepping stone in some ways from a lyrical standpoint for some of the stuff on this record. You know, some of the, yeah. Bowie's albums typically are interconnected in some sort of way. But yeah, I, d- I do like that, the line about the may your vilest nightmares consume your shrunken head. It's like, Okay, shrunken head. You're, it's a it's something that's a little. You're you're a little man, and the horrors you've created have become so large and vile and, and monstrous that you know he hopes it becomes too big for you and consumes you because you're not big enough to deal with it. You've got all this power and this and that, but well, all the wrongs that you've done are gonna fucking destroy your 
little personality when it's all said and done because you're not big enough to deal with what you've you know done. And I wrote down a lyric, and I don't know why I wrote it down, but it was actually for the couple songs ago on Tin Machine. Clarity and power, there's more than money moving here. So I think that maybe I was trying to connect it. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not sure, but yeah. Again, it's funny. We just talked about how maybe the lyrics aren't going to be as Bowie-esque, but here we are. It's love. It's addiction. It's power, powerful people, people in power, leading people astray, social commentary. Yeah. It's it's all there still. But it, And so, yeah, like you said, sometimes a little bit on the nose maybe. Well, maybe that's the lack of the rewrites. Uh, yeah. And maybe the most on the nose line, I, I don't know if uh, it got the explicit logo on the streaming services but uh don't look at me you fuckhead and i feel like we got to mention that anytime a a non-hip-hop artist a, a, a guy like david bowie uses the f-word on an album to me it's like that's that's very noteworthy you <laughs> mention that don't look at me you fuckhead this nation's turning blue i guess blue is just it's turning you know blue is the color when things are in despair it's and the it's color sad. of the color of his room is blue also like i don't know is that it's a police state. I don't know. There could be a lot to actually read. And he's very on the nose, supposedly on the well, nose. Well, or maybe like maybe literally like blue, blue, electric blue, the color of my room. It could be. Turning into, right. yeah, the, the yeah. isolation color. I mean, there actually is maybe a lot more to read into than we're giving it credit for. Or maybe that's just certain songs and certain lines. Yeah. Um, but I do also kind of just think sometimes you need to use lines like that. You know, like this is a, maybe to the Sales Brothers credits, like, you know, this is a very primitive and first draft type of a song. Sometimes you need that type of a song. This is just an angry man ranting, you know, rambling off the first things that came to his head. Like, you know, if I was mad at you, I might say the same thing. Don't look at me, fuckhead. Like, yeah. sometimes you just got to, you know, do these these kind of very, very basic lines. And they kind of work. I th- and this song also, too, is... I think this song rocks. Oh, like, yeah. I remember hearing, like, the lyrics and going, I'm sure when I pick up the books, they're going to rip this sh- song to shreds, but... And I guess it's also a very basic guitar riff, too. It's nothing innovative. But they're playing it very hard. Um, it, it somehow sounds a little bit different, maybe because of the production techniques. It's very heavy playing, yet the instruments sound spacious and... His vocal gets more and more aggressive as it goes to the like every crack city is a bit harder than the last one. Yeah. I like that. So yeah, I mean I I don't think this is a favorite, but I agree with you and you were saying like we haven't really hit a, a rough patch yet. I'm yeah. I'm on board with that. Yeah, I don't I don't I haven't been annoyed at a song yet. The next one's one of the more maybe the best yet to come. Uh, I can't read. And this would be one that probably annoys people with his kind of whatever accent he's doing in the course. Uh, yeah. uh, he's almost kind of doing a reggae thing almost. I don't know what you'd describe the, the course on, on this song, but yeah, it's another it's another pretty decent track. I can't read. Something he revisited in the nineties to like later nineties, so he Well there's like a ninety seven version of it, right? Yeah. On one of those compilations. I think it was around Earthling, yeah, that's right. So he maybe his favorite from the of the bunch. Um I can't read yeah, this is where you get somebody who sees this song and somebody says what Bowie can't read like yeah he's even got a song about it <laughs> ironically Reeves said that Bowie had a book open on the music stand while improvising the lyrics to this song I can't read he, had, he literally had a book in front of him <laughs> that's great um, but I think the next line in the song is maybe more what it's about I can't read and I can't write down uh, yeah, I think yeah. he's speaking of his creative drought that he's coming trying to pull himself out of one, what I, I think is interesting, too, is that 
on this album and on this song in particular, and and he does it a lot throughout just his career too. Is I think Bowie humanizes himself a lot, and he says like, "I can't read shit anymore. I can't get it right anymore. I can't read anymore. I just sit back and ignore. I just can't get it right." Like I feel like this is a thing that a lot of humans Go say to themselves it. on a very yeah. basic level. Now, of course, he's saying it from the perspective of. I'm the rock star that can't write the hit singles anymore. It's not exactly the same thing as you or I if we got into this thing where we felt like, ah, oh, we can't get it right. We just sit back and ignore our problems. But uh, like I said, I mean... It's frustrating nonetheless for him. Yeah, yeah, and you know, like I said, I think this song more than anything just really does a great job of humanizing David Bowie. And I yeah. think that's something that he did a lot, you know, even on Woe and the classic albums where he's talking about, you know, these very basic concepts of isolation. Um I think this song is, is is a very human and a very pure lyric. Reminds me of Sonic Youth a little bit. The dun, 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 dun. It's kind of like a uh, cool thing, but slowed down. It's it's a very, very slow tempo, this. Um, and yeah, it, it, the, just I guess the, the, the guitar in it is very Sonic Youth-esque. Um, I, we haven't talked about Sonic Youth yet on this pod, I think, but we're getting to that era now. Were their contemporaries, and mm-hmm. I really like Sonic Youth. So yeah, kind of reminds me of them sonically. <laughs> so- see what I did there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, highlight so far, I would say this is one of my favorites on the on the album. Yeah, you know, I to be honest with you, I can't. There's not really one here that's sticking out to me above the rest. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, they're all they're all flowing. They're all really even. They're all pretty solid. I, I think this one's. I'm not going to start grading things. We hate grading things. Yeah. The next one, Under the God, another one of those on-the-nose type tracks. Yeah, isn't it? and like you said, they probably lead the more apt choice for the most on-the-nose one on the on the record. Yeah. Uh, right down to the, the riff that is very on-the-nose. It's I Wish You Would. Yeah. Which he did. He covered that song on pinups, so. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, very on-the-nose, you know, like, uh, right wing, right winged right, dicks in their boiler suit. What's a boiler suit? A, uh, is it like a? I mean, like a, a, I'm picturing like a hazmat almost. Like I, I was thinking more like like a mechanic would wear a boiler suit, maybe or like what Michael Myers wears in Halloween. You know? Oh yeah, I just Google the image it and it's literally Michael Myers' outfit. So see now that is why a boiler suit. It's like these right. It's like okay, so you're working class, but you support conservative governments and not taxing the rich and stuff it's kind of like and that's kind of what this song is about to me it's well it's not to me i think that's what it's about because it's so on the nose Mm -hmm. but it's uh it's common folk supporting things that are kind of contradictory to their own situation yeah yeah. you know like uh it's like you know when people complain that you need like oh the government's cutting things but then they cheer tax cuts it's like well okay do you like I'm all for being taxed because we need social programming. We need education and healthcare funding. It's like, shouldn't everybody that's in the working class be kind of like supporting politics that support the working class? I, I, you know, let's not get too far into that, but (laughs) Bowie's pushing us in that direction. Um, And also like the snowball effect that something like he says, to quote Bowie in the song, white trash picking up Nazi flags. When I say a snowball effect, it's like, you know, many of these uh, idiots might not understand the seriousness of this type of stuff. 
until it's too late and suddenly you know a, a facebook algorithm has turned this kid who had a fascination of world war Two is now going to a school and shooting up kids because you know he's got all these ideas in his head and he's taken this fascination a step too far you know to quote bowie at the time not from the song but he said uh freedom of speech uh is is weaponized in other Mm -hmm. words like you you give people freedom of speech and you have to listen to all these idiots talk now and it's or do things and yeah there's just a lot going on well yeah and i I think that's the most important conversation here like i don't really have much to say about the specifics of the song and i think that would actually be doing the composition a disservice because right. this it's, song it's meant to start this type of yeah, discussion. Like it, it, yeah, it wasn't designed to be analyzed critically by two music-loving dorks with a podcast <laughs> sitting in their yeah. backyard drinking, you know, beer, uh, deeming what they think is good and ungood and worthy. You know, I think this actually just sparks a more general conversation about Bowie's skepticism of even like democracy and how okay, like being anti-democracy on one hand sounds ludicrous, but having one like it allows like you said like freedom of speech to be weaponized you, and you see that it's a very dangerous thing you see that sentiment that freedom sentiment being shoved down our throats on yeah. twitter like in 2023 constantly that's all you know ever since the whole musk takeover and that it, it can be a dangerous thing it's, uh, when it's the most it, it's maybe like the most dangerous well, thing like what people will believe suddenly yeah it, it's it's so dangerous when, within that freedom and this is like i said it's actively happening you have hateful unmistakable just bullshit being given a free pass for the sake of freedom right yeah and it, it almost kind of personally makes me pessimistic about just the human race in general because if democracy is no good well then the alternative is even worse i don't even really you know i don't try to act like i'm the guy with all the solutions and sometimes i'm just like oh maybe we're just fucked but <laughs> i i do think that you know that maybe even on top of that the most interesting part of it all is that Bowie himself, and I think you alluded to this a couple tracks earlier, that this may be a bit of a confessional album for him. You know, Bowie dabbled a little too far into Nazism yeah. in the mid-70s, and yeah. I, I can maybe justify what he was doing from some kind of moral standpoint when I think of what he was doing for, for what it was. Like, it wasn't a literal endorsement of the ideology. It was a drugged-out man's performance art. But then the issue with that is that inadvertently he was gaining praise from Nazis, right? Like there right. were there were neo-Nazi magazines I was reading in, in one of the O'Leary books today. This magazine called Spearhead loved it and kind and of then, claiming him. Yeah, 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 cla- yeah, the, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the National Front, uh, a still to this day active, you know, fascist and, and far right political party in the UK. They get fueled by all this stuff, and they can still even exist today. Yeah, uh, they loved. You know, 1976 David Bowie, too. So, you know, your intentions aren't the only thing that matter when, regardless of them, yeah. the ramifications can be awful. And I think it's it's very willfully disingenuous to ignore that. And it, it's apparent that, you know, David Bowie's, I think at least, taught, like when he's doing a song like this, he's he's regretting a lot in his past. Yeah, so he's, absolutely. He's, there's a lot of reflecting yeah. going on on this album and on this song. The in last particular. three songs, yeah, like. Crack City, uh, his his responsibility of glamorizing drug use. I can't read. He's talking about his writer's block or mm-hmm. create. It's more than just writer's block. It was it was something else. It was unique to Bowie. And to and me, now like, this one, yeah. And that's what like what we were just discussing, and you know what other people might be thinking in their head. Like I feel like that was what this song was meant to spark because we say the song's too on the nose, but like let's face it, when he chooses to, Bowie can run laps around any of us. Yeah. When it comes to writing metaphoric or yeah. complex or surreal things that could 
elicit a specific response from the listener, but but he's he's intentionally and quite clearly, I would say, intentionally opting out of that here. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's a, a great or bad idea in principle necessarily, but he didn't really seem to care about how the song came out from a, a rock critic standards perspective. I think the point was the point, and that was really all that mattered yeah. for this song. Well, and something that isn't quite as on the nose maybe, or maybe I just missed it because there's so many other things that stand out as well, but the, the song title, Under the God, now that could be interpreted many ways, but one reading that I kind of have is that bad behavior can often be protected by religion. I'll give an example. Something that I find so infuriating is you see a lot of sports teams, they'll have like a pride night where they'll just basically have pride flags on their logo, on their hat or whatever in a baseball game, or they'll use like a pride jersey or something like that for warm-ups. And certain players will just be like, no, I, I, I don't support that because I'm religious. My religion says no. Oh, yeah, and, you know, those same... and they get away with it. Like, well, And they're, they're, they totally support, you know, uh, what's the word? I'm like? they, they definitely don't commit adultery or anything like that, yeah. those hockey players, yeah. right? Like, let's not get into that. Yeah. <laughs> like, they very conveniently pick when to use religion. Or as Reverend Lovejoy would say, have you ever read this thing? We're not even allowed to use the bathroom. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I mean, if you're going to... But... Stand up for your religious beliefs, but there's no consistency within that, hardly ever. Right. So that's the that's the hypocrisy of yeah. it. But also, like, are we not at a point now where, you, like, that should just you, you should just be done for doing something like that? You know, like, can you imagine? So 30, 40 years ago, before Jackie Robinson Day was a thing, uh, c- could you imagine 30, 40 years ago if somebody? were to say, I'm not going to wear number 42, which everybody does to honor Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in baseball. Mm-hmm. 40 years ago, if you don't do that, people would go, oh, yeah, like, whatever. Now, if you were to do that, like, you would get kicked out of the league, mm-hmm. like, completely. Like, your, your teammates would turn on you, right? Yeah. And your fan base would turn on you. Your ownership group would turn on you, your coach, like, everything like that. Now, but why are they, like, that's not happening because they're saying, oh, I don't want to wear a pride logo. Should that not be, like, have we not reached that place yet? I think, and I'm... Like, obviously, evidently not. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Like, I'm not trying to justify the difference, but I think what certain people, certain stupid people will say the difference is, is that, like, you can't change the fact that you're black, but they think that it's a... People are still hung up on this idea that changing your sex or sleeping with it. They think that that's something that you can actively, like they, they think that the schools are because there's, there was a drag show down the road last week that now all the kids are going to be gay. And it's, 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 it's making them do something that's not natural. I don't know. Yeah. It's, there are two sides. One is full of love and one is full of hate. We'll end maybe the episode on that. Uh, I hope we didn't lose. We anyway. may have, you know, we may have lost <laughs> half our listeners, but damn well, it, I don't want you. Well, as a like listener. you said, though, we are talking yeah. about this is David Bowie Tin Machine. This is this is what he's yep. preoccupied with. So it's naturally, I guess, just going to come out. And like I said, for as on the nose as some of these songs maybe are, I think that the the point was to maybe spark these conversations anyway. Yep. So all right, let's wrap it up. That was Tin Machine side A. Great job, Bowie. Um, Great You've, job, Tin Machine. Great, sorry. Yes, of course. <laughs> this has been the Tin Machine David podcast. Bowie's only my third favorite member of Tin Machine. Third favorite. So yeah. who's the poor fourth member, Hunt? <laughs> no, you're a drummer, so it's Tony. Yeah, but you know what? I also wasn't 
totally impressed by the drumming on this record, so I'll say he's... I don't he's, even I don't even know which one's... I'm like, we'll talk about the cover, I guess, in the next episode. I don't even know who the <laughs> fuck is who. I know Bowie's the guy with the beard. That's honestly it. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get more on... We'll, yeah, maybe we'll touch on... Oh, let's just do it now. Yeah, Bowie was... Although everybody stopped listening when I said that's it. <laughs> but, but apparently Bowie, uh, when they came out live for the first time, they just borrowed a bunch of musicians... Uh, they were at a bar in Nassau, Bahamas, and there was a band up, and they said, can we borrow your, your instruments and go up on stage? And they went and played some songs, and that was their mm-hmm. first gig without with someone else's equipment. And, like, apparently, like, the crowd was like, is that David Bowie? Like, what the hell? Tin, or I don't even know if they were called Tin Machine at this point, but they, and then someone, apparently it was like, no, he's got a beard. That was, like, the thing. <laughs> Can't be. He's got, this guy's got a beard. Well, has he had a beard in any other period ball ball and then maybe there's not a lot of pictures but you think you have one for low when they were recording that? yeah yeah that's right yeah. and once again though it's just hard for me to divorce the cover from the album so when i think of low yeah i don't think of david Bowie with the beard i think of how, how am i forgetting his name in that movie man who fell the earth what was his name uh that's who's on the cover jerome yeah thomas jerome uh, newt newton 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 jerome newton Trump. yeah i can't remember now we've lost Isaac Newton. now we've lost the far right and now we've lost the David Bowie fan so <laughs> who do we have left Thomas Jerome Newton so that actually is the, that's okay. it I'm pretty okay, sure we actually it. got yeah. it okay we you, saved, you saved us so we've lost we've lost the right but we've kept the Bowie fans and that, that's right where we want to be in time for side B of Tin Machine I've been Jesse for side A I'm not sure who I was for side A but I'll be John for the next one